The proposed HIPAA security rule was published on August 12, 1998, and the final rule was released more than four years later in February 2003. So with technology and the cyber landscape changing so dramatically in the last 20 years, has the HIPAA security rule become a relic that needs refreshing? I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee, Executive Editor of Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Tom Walsh, Founder and Managing Partner of consulting firm TW Security. Tom will be providing his assessment of where the HIPAA security rule should go now that it's approaching the 20-year mark. So, Tom, a lot has changed since the HIPAA security rule made its debut. Do you think it's become outdated? And what about the rule is most antiquated at this point, in your opinion? I do believe that the rule is antiquated in the sense that there's nothing specifically in the rule to address the modern technology and the issues we're dealing with in today's cyber world. Now, the good point about the security rule is that one of the first implementation specifications that's required is a risk analysis. And that risk analysis will allow you to consider today's threats and what are the controls that are in place. But most of the controls that are specified are pretty vague, and so it's really open for a lot of interpretation. And the rule itself is heavily weighted towards compliance things that are evidence-based, which would be policies, procedures, plans, and other forms of documents. And as far as I know, no hackers have ever been thwarted by a set of well-written policies. So we really need to take another look at the security rule and see what areas we could beef up, in particular, the areas of technical safeguards. So, Tom, when it comes to the HIPAA security rule, Rather than a possible facelift, do you think more or better guidance could help modernize the way that covered entities and business associates interpret the rule and implement its requirements? And you had mentioned that there are certain technology controls that need to be examined. What were they? Well, Marianne, when the rule came out, we didn't have mobile phones in the sense that we had today. Uh, Back then, they were really just cellular phones and texting What was that? That wasn't even around. These are issues that we're dealing with today that there is no guidance. There's no guidance on cloud computing. So I think that the uh, technical safeguards need some uh, revision there to address these issues because these are things that come up quite often. Cloud, back in 1998 when this thing came out, those were white puffy things in the sky, not necessarily a place to store data. So revising those or at least providing some better guidance on it. Now, the tricky part in all this is that the government tries to be technology neutral. So when you start specifying controls, you have to be very careful not to specify a a particular technology that would make or break a particular vendor. So it's trying to be general in that sense, but yet a little more specific in terms of the technology required If you look at the payment card industry data security standard, it's almost the opposite of the security rule, where the security rule in HIPAA is more administrative policies, procedures, plans. The payment card industry data security standard has a lot of technical requirements. So I think it is feasible to write something generic enough, but be a little more specific when it comes to terms of today's technology. So now the Department of Health and Human Services has in the past put out 
I think it was called a crossover between HIPAA and the NIST cybersecurity framework. You think that was enough in order to kind of fill any of the gaps? Or what do you think of that? So the NIST cybersecurity framework is a good way to assess your program to see what your maturity is and to see if you have adequate controls in place. That wasn't enough guidance there, Marianne. It was just a nice way to align the HIPAA security rule with how it could align with today's NIST cybersecurity framework, but it doesn't necessarily specify certain technologies that need to be in place. So, Tom, while we're talking about outdated rules, the Department of Health and Human Services is contemplating possible changes to the HIPAA privacy rule. Anything that you think HHS should change or update in the privacy rule? Yes, there's several things in there, but we have some areas in there that over the years we started, we thought this would be a great idea. Now that we're almost 20 years down the road, you look at it and go, maybe this wasn't such a great idea after all. The accounting of disclosures is one of those things. In the beginning, we thought that patients would want to know when their data was shared outside of treatment, payment, healthcare operations. But the patients really want to know is who looked at my record. And so that's not part of the privacy rule today. They tried to put it into the High Tech Act, but it never came to fruition. There was no rule or guidance that was ever derived from the Department of Health and Human Services on that area. The privacy rule, again, only deals with protected health information, same with the security rule. But in life, we deal with more than just that. We have what we call personally identifiable health information, or PII. We have credit card data. We've got business and proprietary data that organization needs to run their company. You've got bank account numbers, you got passwords, you got pins, you got security codes. This is all confidential information. So to write a rule that says only worried about the privacy of just one thing, just patient information, nothing else. And the security rule goes even further. It says the only thing we're worried about is electronic protected health information. I think that's too narrow of a focus. There should be a, a broader approach to what is important to be protected. If you're an employee of one of these hospitals, don't you want the organization to protect your social security number to the same level that you would protect patient information? If somebody's going to commit identity theft, they can use your social security number just as well as they could use a patient's. But if you look at policies and procedures that organizations create today, they're so HIPAA-focused that they don't even consider anything outside of electronic protected health information. I think that's just wrong. We need a little broader approach. A related item is the breach notification rule. The breach notification rule tells organizations that are covered entities and business associates what they're supposed to do if there's a breach to protected health information. Well, every state in the union has breach notification laws as well, and those pertain to PII. So there's definite overlap. And in some cases, the state's breach notification rules for PII are far more restrictive or stringent than they are for the, at the federal level. So when you look at solutions to how to implement the breach notification rule, you'll find that it's so HIPAA-specific that it's not going to be beneficial or helpful when you're having to deal with a breach that requires reporting at a state level. If you had credit card data that got breached, the data may or may not be patient information. So, for example, a guarantor the person who's actually paying the bill may not actually be the patient. But if their credit card data gets breached, you have an obligation to notify the card brands. 
but there's nothing written in the breach notification rule that even take that into consideration. So therefore, any of the tools that are developed to help you to implement the breach notification rule are very narrow focused. They only deal with protected health information. So I think we need a broader view of what is important, what needs to be secured, what do we need to maintain privacy over, and it's more than just the PHI. So, Tom, with that said, you do work with a lot of healthcare organizations and business associates. Where do you think CEs and BAs are going wrong when it comes to their health data security and privacy strategies? For instance, are many of them focused so much on HIPAA compliance that it is potentially watering down their strategy and the controls they should be implementing to keep up with the cybersecurity landscape and the threats that we see today versus decades ago? Where are they going wrong most often? Marianne, I think you're right. Originally, they were so focused that they were missing out on what's going on in the cyber landscape. But, you know, there's been so many high-profile breaches in the news that it's caught everybody's attention. And what we have seen over the last five years is a trend that's a really good trend and that organizations are moving away from just saying being HIPAA compliant to being cyber secure. So they're looking more at the bigger picture rather than just staying focused on a narrow HIPAA compliance issue. When I hear an entity or a a vendor of a product or service saying they're HIPAA compliant, I always have to scratch my head and say, what does that mean? I mean, first of all, there's the only organization that has the authority to deem someone as HIPAA compliant is the Office for Civil Rights or the OCR and they're not doing that. So where do they come off saying they're HIPAA compliant? And even if they could, what does it mean? It means you're able to comply with a standard that was originally created in the 19, in 1998 for security. whoop de do That does not address today's security risk and cyber risk. So fortunately, I see a trend where we're moving away from just being narrowly focused on HIPAA compliance to looking more at the larger picture and seeing what are our risks here. And so, Tom, what are some of the most underutilized security technologies that you see these days that you think offer the most promise for the healthcare sector, but they're just not implementing them? I'm going to start with what everybody's been saying for years, encryption. Encrypt everything. Any data that's readily available to be accessed is vulnerable. If you're not going to encrypt your data, there's lots of hackers out there willing to release ransomware and encrypt it for you. So in many cases, it could be your safe harbor. Many of the breach laws that are written for states allow for some wiggle room as far as breach notification if you can demonstrate or prove that the data was encrypted. The breach notification rule has the same thing. It has some criteria. It surrounds the FIPS 140-2 level of encryption. Anything you can do to secure the data keeps you from having to do a breach notification. A second thing that I think is very important, and that is a year ago, the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, NIST, released some guidance on authentication and user IDs and credentials. But in there, they talked a little bit about passwords, and they mentioned that the number one control that we could put in place to prevent a hacking attack is to have 
an account locked after a certain number of failed logon attempts. In fact, NIST said in this document it was far more effective than having a complex password, a password great length of characters, or a password that changed frequently. So it was an eye-opener, and it was something that many organizations were ignoring. A simple account lockout after like three or five or even ten failed logon attempts is a much more effective control. Today, we really should rely on two-factor authentication. How can we trust anyone? A lot of users just can't keep track of multiple user IDs and passwords, so there's a tendency to reuse the same passwords. If one of your other accounts gets hacked, maybe your Gmail at home or your Yahoo, or it could be one of the stores where you do business and you have an online account, if they get hacked and they get the password for you, there's a pretty good chance you may use that password somewhere else. So two-factor authentication is a secure way to get access to data without having to worry about someone else using another person's credentials because it requires two of the three things, something I know, something I have, or something about me, you know, like a biometric. So I think two-factor or dual-factor authentication is something that's underutilized these days. So those would be my top three, Marianne. And finally, Tom, what is the biggest cybersecurity threat that you see is facing the healthcare sector these days that's most worrisome to you that you think is just perhaps being overlooked too often by the healthcare sector? You know, I would go with my always my first one, which would be the end user, and I, that's probably a cop-out, but truly it's one mouse click, one user, and a catastrophic event can occur. No matter how much we try, we, there's only so many controls we can put in place, and I think that's one of our areas that we are lacking. And the second one would be after studying and looking at some of the high-profile breaches that have occurred and trying to figure out, you know, what went wrong. Many times it comes down to something very simple like a server that hasn't been kept up on its patching or some other vulnerability that could have been easily detected or was known but just hadn't been corrected yet. So that goes back to a discipline of being good about your configuration management, workstations, laptops, tablets, smartphones, servers, firewalls, all of it has to be configured and configured securely. Users need to keep up to date on all of the latest versions of their software as well as their endpoint protection because that's where the weakest area is. Thanks, Tom. I've been speaking to Tom Walsh. I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.